Ephesians 1 is where we are tonight. We'll finish up the uh, the amazing first 14 verses, which are, I think, um, among the most powerful and profound 14 verses of Scripture, if not the most of all. Um, so tonight we'll be looking at verse 13, verse 14. Paul, just to kind of remind us, he is. this is all a prayer. It's a prayer speaking back to God the character of God and the actions of God. As Paul is praying back to God, he's, of course, teaching the Ephesians how to pray, and he's teaching them that their lives are reoriented back in a Godward direction as they pray back to God, his character and his attributes. So, so Paul is just going through this theological uh, rendition of what God has done and who God is. And as Paul is doing that, as he's contemplating the predetermining before the creation of the world, the predetermining of God's choice of his people, the adoption that comes in Jesus Christ, the comprehensive forgiveness that comes on the cross. As Paul is contemplating all these things, it cannot help but to reorient Paul in a godly direction. The Ephesians, Paul's prayer for them is going to be in verses 15, 16, 17, 18, his prayer is going to be that they too would see and understand the things that Paul is speaking of here. So he comes now to the very end of this passage and he is going to end with something that I think is probably one of the greatest and most significant challenges in the, in the sense of one of the most universally significant challenges that followers of Christ face. And that challenge is the question of the genuineness of my relationship with God, the, the truth of my relationship with God, the reality of my standing with God, or, or to put it in a more common way, assurance of eternal security. This is something that every one of us in the room has faced. Perhaps you've faced it recently. Perhaps you'll face it again recently. Every follower of Christ faces this, and every follower of Christ faces it more than once. Um, it's been my experience that we face it almost in a cyclical way, that um, it's not something that only baby Christians deal with. This is something that all followers of Christ deal with. The true, lasting, genuine assurance that we belong to God and we will be saved to the uttermost, as the writer of Hebrews says. Now, why is this such a challenge and why is it such a recurring problem? I think there's several reasons for that. First of all, I think that the assurance of our standing with God is something that comes up time and time again because of uh, the, the gravity of the question, the significance of the question. There's no greater question that you can ask, ask and answer of yourself than what will my eternal condition be? And so because it's such a weighty question, the answer to that question is one that we tend to struggle with and wrestle with. Because the, the more significant a question, the more you wrestle with the answer. You know that to be true? Remember the uh, uh, that show Regis Philman, is that his name? Who wants to be a millionaire? Is that your final answer? That's what he'd say. Is that your final answer? I'm pretty sure that's right, but... Wow, there's a million dollars riding on this answer. And so that struggle, because that was such a weighty, significant question. How much weightier is the answer to the question, where will you spend eternity? 
So I think that because it's such a weighty answer, that it tends to be one that we conflict with, that we um, have assurance, and then there's times in our life in which that assurance seems to fade or even leave us altogether. Secondly, I think that, it, of course, this is an area that the enemy attacks us in and on a regular basis. Um, the enemy loves to attack our identity in Christ and our standing in Christ. So uh, we'll never outgrow the attacks of the enemy upon our identity in Christ. So those are a couple of reasons that I think that, that we wrestle with. But I think a bigger reason, not a bigger reason, I think an additional reason, is the reason that the Scriptures themselves don't always seem to just put aside our questions of our assurance. You ever known that to be true? That when, when you seek assurance of your standing with God, you can't simply just say, just read the Bible and that'll go away. Do you know that? To, have you experienced that to be true? That some of those times when you are wrestling with your real, genuine assurance with Christ, and you pick up your Bible and read it, it doesn't get better. It actually gets worse. You ever had that happen to you? That as you read Scripture, the, the doubts that you have in your mind actually grow and actually increase. And sometimes, I've had this happen to me countless of times, that I wasn't particularly struggling with assurance until I read my Bible, and then all of a sudden I was. So just simply reading our Bibles doesn't always dispel our questions about assurance. Because think of it this way. That's precisely what Satan used against the Son of God in the, on, in the attacks in the wilderness. You remember the attacks in the wilderness, which were attacks upon Jesus' assurance of who he was. Don't mistake what was going on in the wilderness. Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, the Gospels have Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan is saying, are you really what God just said you were? If you were the Son of God, then da 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 da. If you really were the Son of God, then this, then that. That's exactly what was happening in the wilderness. Satan was attacking the same thing that he attacks with, attacks with us. Our assurance of what God has said we are. God said, this is my beloved Son, and Satan was attacking that. And also don't lose sight of how Satan was attacking. He was attacking Jesus' identity with the Word of God. You say you're the Son of God. Well, it is written. You say you're the Son of God. It's written. Cast yourself off the top of the temple. And it's written that you won't, you won't even bang your heel against the stones. So Satan was using the very Word of God to attack what God had said Jesus was. So don't be surprised when you open God's Word and find that your doubts can actually increase by reading God's Word. Your, your doubts of your assurance can actually be stronger, be strengthened by reading God's Word. Kind of like Googling medical symptoms. You ever been foolish enough to do that? Like you have some sort of weird pain in your body Something that's never hurt before, and like, let me Google this, and and you're quickly convinced that you've got about a week to live, and it's just it's all it's curtains for you because this is the worst thing that's ever. Kind of the same thing. 
that when you have a little bit of doubt, sometimes God's Word can burst that doubt wide open. Take a look in your sermon uh, notes here, some examples that, that I've got. I've just This is just a small sampling of how God's Word can do precisely that. Romans 11. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Or 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Or Galatians 6, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Anybody ever felt like that you gave up? If you've had a time when you felt like that you gave up on your faith, then let me recommend that you not read Galatians 6, 9, because that won't help. Or Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or Colossians 1, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Has anybody ever been less than stable and steadfast in your faith? Has anybody ever shifted from the hope of the gospel that you have heard? Um, if so, then, then Colossians 1 will not help you too much if you are seeking to just have those doubts assuaged. Or Hebrews 12. Hebrews, man, the five stern warnings. Uh, Hebrews is as stern as it gets in terms of shaking the foundation of your assurance. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or First Peter 1. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Or finally, Revelation 2, verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Those are just a small sampling of a whole bucket list of scriptures that do basically the same thing, that seem to attack your assurance in who you are in Christ. God has said that you're His child. These passages, as well as many others, will um, almost seem as though God is threatening your security in Him. Um, God's Word can often do just that, threaten your security in Him. However, um, I think we realize, of course, that all of those passages, as well as any of the others that I'm speaking of, all of them are pointing us to the same type of thing, the, the same the same topic, if you will, in the sense that we know this to be true. We know that the only true test of the genuineness of our salvation is perseverance in the faith and holiness of life. The Scriptures will tell that to us over and over. This is what these passages are saying. That the only true, genuine test of our standing with God is our perseverance in the faith 
and the holiness of our life. And so what God is really saying in all of these passages, He's saying this. He's saying, if your security is found in anything other than that, then I'm here to threaten that. God, God's Word will threaten any security that you have that is not God. Does that make sense? That if your security is in part coming from your uh, health, your uh, education, your uh, common sense, your um, get-it-done attitude, your um, children, your 401k, your um, inheritance, earthly inheritance, uh, you name it. Go down, make that list as long as you want to make it. If your security is found in any of those, then God's Word is here to say, I'm here to threaten that. And I'm here to strip from you any assurance that you may have that is not assurance in God and God alone that evidences itself in perseverance of faith and holiness of life. So God is here to threaten all security that is not security in Him. I think Isaiah sums this up pretty well in, in your sermon notes. Um, a number of times Isaiah really gets to this same kind of point. From Isaiah 31 he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. In the Old Testament, going to Egypt was a metaphor for trusting in man. Abraham, the story of Abraham. The famine comes and Abraham goes to Egypt. The famine comes and Isaac goes to Egypt. Over and over we see that it's kind of a metaphor for not trusting in God, but instead trusting in something other than God. Trusting in my own resources, my own resourcefulness, trusting in people, trusting in whatever. A metaphor for that is going to Egypt. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Woe to them. God is here to strip from them any security that they may, be, that they may find in anything other than Him. Instead, God seeks to drive us to seek our security only in Him and Him alone. Which, it, um, I, I think that we can, we can even just make it even a broader statement than that. We can say that a pretty good working definition of sin is this. Sin is seeking to find fulfillment, purpose, or security in anything other than God. That's not a bad working definition of sin. Sin is seeking to find fulfillment, purpose, or security in anything other than God. And so God comes to us with this message in His Word that on the one hand says, turn from sin or you die. And then on the other hand, He says, rest in Me and you will live. And both of those messages are the same one. You follow? God says to us in His Word, turn from sin or you die. And He also says, rest in Me and you live. And He's saying the same thing. I'm here to strip from you 
any assurance that you have that is not me. But I'm also here to assure you, to bolster your assurance when that assurance comes from me and me alone. Because God's desire, this is important to get right here, God's desire is not only that you be secure in your relationship with Him, but that you know it. God's desire is not only that you be secure in your relationship with Him, but that you know it. And so, all that brings us to the text tonight, which is one of the Bible's clearest statements of just that, of God's desire, not only that your salvation is secure, but that you grasp it, that you realize it, that you know it, that you feel it, that emotionally it resonates with you, that your emotions are consistent with the assurance that God says is real, because it's important to Him, not only that your salvation is secure, that you know it and that you feel it. You probably know the story of the Golden Gate Bridge. You probably heard that story of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Anybody heard that story? The, the, the Golden Gate Bridge built in the early 30s. Huge, huge engineering project. Any, any bridge that size is a huge engineering project, but in 1933 was a massive engineering project. And so they began work on the Golden Gate Bridge, and through the first phase of the, of, the, of the bridge, the construction was going as construction normally went on those kinds of projects in those days, which meant a lot of human death. There was something like 18 human deaths in the, in the, first, in the construction of the first pillar. Because, of course, the, the, the pillars, the Golden Gate pillars, are some, some 220 feet above the water. And so as they're constructing those pillars... Anyone that falls, you're falling from a 22-story building. So it was normal in those days that those construction projects just expected a high rate of human death. In fact, the rule of thumb was for every million dollars, they expected one human death. Well, the first phase of construction was done to normal construction standards of the day. And about 18 people died building the first pier, the first tower. But after that, the construction company put into place a radical new safety system, which was a net underneath the workers, so that through the remainder of the construction process, any of the workers that were working at heights were working above a net. And what they found was productivity went through the roof, that the workers, they measured the workers to be some 25% more productive the bridge finished ahead of schedule and under budget because after the net was in place, workers would fall into the net and no big deal. And they soon found out that they were okay. Working 220 feet above the water, they were okay. And that then meant that they could take more risks in doing their work. They could be faster about doing their work and wouldn't have to be so overly cautious with their life. And they found that the assurance that they weren't going to die actually increased productivity. The same thing is true with your productivity, so to speak, 
in spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is directly connected to your degree of assurance in your salvation. You know that to be true? Your spiritual growth, there's, there's a direct relationship between your level of mental and emotional assurance and your level of spiritual growth. Here's why. It's, it's, it's really pretty simple when you think about it. Those people, or I shouldn't, I should say those people and all of us when we have these times, when we are uncertain about our standing with God, growth cannot occur again. If you're uncertain about your standing with God, then there's only one thing that you and He can do, and that's work at getting it right. And you can't really progress beyond that. You ever known um, Christians from those faith traditions that believe that salvation is not necessarily permanent, that it can be lost? Wesleyans, Nazarenes, those, those faith traditions. Those, those Christians, in my opinion, tend to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And that's because in their belief system, they believe that salvation can be lost. And so therefore, they're constantly trying to get it back. Instead of progressive, like the writer of the Hebrews says, you should be eating meat by now, but you haven't progressed, so I need to still give you milk. In the same way, if our emotions and our thoughts aren't secure about our standing with God, then that's all that we'll ever do is try to be right with Him. Say a prayer that gets us right with God or something of that nature. But we cannot progress on to maturity until we can leave, as the writer of the Hebrews says, those elementary things behind and move on to more things. And so that is why it is not only important to God that your salvation is, is secure, but that you know it's secure. And the passage tonight is one of the greatest places that the Bible says that very thing to us. So let's read from chapter 1. We'll look at verse uh, 12, 13, 14, but let's read from verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul will go on from here to write one of, one of the, the greatest ethical letters or moral letters. In other words, the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, 5, and 6, have some of the, the, the most powerful things to say to us about how it is we are to live our life. And Paul finds it important, before he gets to that, to remind the Ephesians that you are secure in your relationship with God, and you can know this because he desires for you to feel it, he desires for you to sense it, and he desires for you to be secure in it so that you can move on into security or into growth. So, these two verses that we'll flesh out basically have, they, they got a lot of things that they say to us, but they basically have three things that I want to kind of flesh out. And you'll see as we look at these three things that all of them flow from one, 
one to the next, such that they're built on one another and they flow from one another. The three things that Paul wants us to see here in these verses, the first thing that I think he wants the Ephesians to see is that the security of your salvation and the knowledge that you are secure in your salvation has everything to do with the glory of God. From the end of verse 12, it's like he, he, he bookends he bookends this statement with two times this statement about the praise of the glory of God. So at the end of verse 12, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It's almost like, it's almost like that the whole topic of Assurance of salvation has everything to do with the glory of God. That it begins and ends with the glory of God. God, He's the Alpha, He's the Omega. All things come from Him and return to Him. In the same way, the security of our salvation and the knowledge that we're secure in our salvation has everything to do with the glory of God. Now last week, we talked a bit more about the glory of God. And what that means. We come across that phrase hundreds of times in Scripture. The glory of God. All these things are for the glory of God. Live your life for the glory of God. And last week, one of the things that I said about that was that the glory of God, I think it's most helpful to think of that in terms of the display of who God is. The revelation of His character. God's character is what it is. Unchanging. God doesn't need us to recognize Him in order for Him to be holy, righteous, majestic, all these things, right? God's not like, you heard the saying, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, did it make any noise? God's not like that. He doesn't need humans to realize that He is holy in order for Him to be holy. He is holy because that's His character. However, the glory of God has to do with the revealing of His holiness, of His righteousness, of His justice, of His love, His forgiveness, all the things that are the character of God. The glory of God is like the showing of who God is, the displaying of God. And so the glory of God has everything to do with specifically the knowledge that your salvation is secured in. Your knowledge of your security in God has everything to do with His glory. Now, why is that? That leads us to the second thing. The Paul, Paul says to us next that the assurance of your standing with God as well as the glory of who He is, the inheritance that we are and that we have, that we talked about last time. Remember, we talked about what I believe Paul is saying is, is that we have been obtained as God's inheritance. And, and we also have an inheritance. That inheritance is Him. He's going to get to that in verse 14. All of those things are only for those who believe upon God. He says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard 
the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So all of this is only for those who believe, who hear and believe upon him. Like Jesus, parable of soils, remember? There's four kinds of soils that hear, but only one kind of soil believes. And so the heart that has the soil that hears and believes, it is that heart that has the assurance that they belong to him. Now let me kind of put a face to all of that that I just said, and I think that this will put the pieces together, and hopefully it'll, it may be kind of an aha sort of moment for some of us. Why is it that those, it is only those who believe that have assurance of their relationship with Him? Let me put it this way, to come at it from a different angle. The glory of God, the revealing of the character of God, has everything to do with our assurance, who we are with Him. And that has everything to do with those who believe upon Him. Isn't it true that one of the greatest ways that you can honor someone is to trust them? Isn't that true that trusting a person is one of the most profound ways that you can honor that person? By Trusting in them, you are declaring them to be worthy of your trust. And the and the greater you trust them, the greater honor you give them, right? I mean, if I were to say tonight that, uh, Rose, um, can you bring the snacks next week? And you say, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I say, all right, done, I trust you. I trust that Rose will bring the snacks next week, right? I'm I'm giving honor to you, but not a lot. Because if you don't, no big deal. When the world doesn't stop revolving, we, we continue on even if Rose didn't bring snacks, right? But if we were to I don't know, climb to, to the top of one of the five or six story buildings in Burlington and you were to stand on the very edge and, and I would stand just inside and I would turn my back and, and say, Rose, I'm going to not look I'm just going to fall backwards and I'm going to trust you to catch me, then that's a whole different kind of trust. And it's a whole different level of honor. If I trust you with my very life, then that's a, a very honoring thing to bestow upon you. So we honor someone by trusting you. Paul has said that the assurance, the knowing that we are safe in Christ, has everything to do with the glory of God, which is the revealing, the demonstrating of Him and His character, and that comes from those who believe in Him, who trust Him, who honor Him with their trust, which is glorifying God. You see how the, it's a circle. It completes itself. God is glorified by us when we trust in Him, and when we trust in Him, we give glory to Him, and His glory has everything to do with those who trust Him. It's only for those who trust Him.
sitting. You can follow it around and around. Because as we on, we trust Him, we honor Him. To, today is uh, today's John Piper's birthday. Anybody know who John Piper is? You know John. Today's his birthday. What's the most famous thing that John Piper says? The one statement that is his uh, defining statement. God is most glorified in us. Okay. Maybe it's not as popular as I I listened to him a lot. I just didn't realize. Well, he's got this one phrase that he he coins as kind of a key phrase for him, and it goes like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He says that a bunch. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And you see what he means. When we are totally satisfied in God, then are we not honoring Him and glorifying Him, saying that you are so precious, so holy, so fulfilling, so righteous, so everything, that I find my satisfaction in you, and God is honored by it. This is the same kind of thing. When we trust in God, we honor Him, we glorify Him, and His glory is what secures not only the reality of our salvation, but our knowledge of that reality. Let me say that again, and then I'll tell you why. Our glorifying of Him by trusting Him is what in itself secures for us the reality of our salvation and the knowledge of that reality. And here's why. God, all over this passage, Paul is very clear to say, God is very much concerned with His glory. In fact, the whole Bible tells us that. If we were to say, what's the one thing that God is most concerned about? How would you answer that? The one thing that is most important to God is His glory. For me, that comes through loud and clear in the Scriptures. For the sake of my name. For the sake of my name. Over and over. For the glory of my name. God is very concerned with His own glory. And when when we trust in Him, we declare Him to be worthy of our trust. And so God, who's very concerned with His own glory, automatically then will make sure that those who trust in Him are secure. Make sense? If we trust in Him, and He fails us, then we've demonstrated Him to be unworthy of our trust. Anybody think that a God that is concerned with His own glory would allow that to ever happen? Of course not. So, when we trust in Him, the God who is concerned with His own name and with His own glory will make absolutely certain that those who have trusted in Him will be shown to have placed their trust well. To have not placed their trust haphazardly or wrongly. And so that's the, that's the third, the third point that, that I want to make here. God is committed to His own glory. So therefore, He necessarily is utterly committed to those who have trusted in Him. 
Therefore, number three, God takes decisive steps to secure those who trust in Him. God takes decisive steps to secure those who trust in Him. Look at verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So God is here is shown to take decisive steps to secure the salvation of those who have trusted in Him. And Paul uses two words there to describe the decisive steps that God takes to make sure that that is secure. The two words he uses are translated sealed and guaranteed. It's God uh, sealed and guaranteed in the Spirit. So let's, let's talk for just a minute about those two words, about what Paul means by sealed he has sealed us in the Spirit, and the Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance. So first of all, sealed. When, um, when we look through Scripture to see what, what is meant by the word sealed, I find at least four things that Scripture means by the use of the word sealed. And this is in your sermon notes. First of all, we find that Scripture means um, sealed in the sense of locking up or closing up, securing, so to speak. From Matthew 27, they went and made the tomb, tomb that Jesus was in secure by sealing it. So Jesus' body, they didn't want it to be stolen, so they sealed it to fasten it up, to lock it up, to secure it. Or Revelation 20, that uh, the beast was thrown into the pit and sealed into the pit. There's a locking up, a securing away, a closing off. Secondly, we see in Scripture... The word sealed often means the granting of a sign of authenticity or the guaranteeing of the genuine character of the bearer. So a seal sometimes means, when a seal is given, it means the guaranteeing of the character of that which bears the seal, like a document. The seal. Proof, right. The seal of approval. A seal of approval. The, the seal guarantees, like a notary, when you have a, a document notarized, it's, that's guaranteeing the authenticity of the signature on the doc, document. Paul uses this in reference to Abraham from Romans 4. He says that Abraham, circumcision was the seal, the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So the circumcision in Abraham's body was like this seal that, that guaranteed the authenticity of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Well, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that converts, the Christian converts, are his seal of authenticity as an apostle. Because there's these, this Corinthian church, that's sort of a, uh, a, a guarantee that he was an authentic apostle through their conversion. So that's another meaning, is the guaranteeing of the genuine character of the bearer. Thirdly, we see um, that it means sometimes protecting the bearer from harm. From Revelation 7, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So there's this aspect of protecting them from the wrath of God that is to come. The seal that's placed on the foreheads is sort of a protecting, a sign of protection that whoever bears that seal, their hands off, their their, uh, off limits, so to speak. And then lastly, a seal is a mark of ownership. From Song of Solomon, chapter 8, 
Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So scripture sometimes uses the word seal to mean all those things. So the question is, which of those meanings does Paul mean here? That, that the Spirit is a seal for us. And I think that it's first of all impossible to say which one he means. Because they all fit. And even more importantly, I don't think it matters. Because I think what Paul is saying to us about the Spirit in this passage, all of those apply. That He is the, the mark of ownership. That God owns us. And the Spirit within us is, the, is His mark of ownership. He is the guarantee of the genuineness of the faith that's in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are new creations and the Spirit is is the seal that guarantees the authenticity of that newness. He is the uh, the locking away. He seals us so that falling into disbelief is locked away from us. We are locked away into faith, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, I know whom I believe and I am convinced until that He is able to guard until that day that which is in, has entrusted to me. So He locks us away. He's also the mark of ownership. ownership. I already said that one. But... This, the Spirit functions as all of those in what Paul is saying here. So think of the richness of that analogy the, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Secondly, Paul says that He is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, much has been written about that word guarantee, what, what that means. You probably have heard it explained that it's kind of like um, a wedding ring that um, when Travis, when you and Kristen were, were preparing to be married, there was a ring that went on the Kristen's finger, and that was a promise that she was yours, you were hers, and this wedding was to come, and the ring was like a promissory guarantee of what was to come. And so, in that sense, it's been described that that's kind of what the Spirit is for us, a guarantee of the salvation that is to come. However, I don't think that that really gets what the Word means or what Paul means. What Paul is saying here, the Word, the Word's Arabon, the Word means much closer to not, not a promissory note, like maybe you write a check, you write a check to somebody for $25 that, that that's a promissory note that I promised to pay you 25 bucks. Not so much a promissory ring or note as much as a down payment in earnest. That's really much, much closer to what that word means and what Paul is getting at here. Not a promissory note, but earnest money. A down payment in earnest money. Like I have... Uh, given earnest money to this house that, that we're, we're buying. Which means I have paid a small amount of the total sale, sales price that if I default on the sale, I lose it because it's earnest money. If I follow through on the sale, then that's part of what's paid to the owner. Right? Down payment, earnest money. That's much closer to what Paul's saying here because not only is that what what the word means. But secondly, the Spirit 
the Spirit is not only a promise of inheritance to come, He's part of it. And that's the difference between down payment and wedding ring. A wedding ring, this is a promise of marriage. This is a symbol of marriage. But this is not my marriage. I could lose this and I'm still just as married. That's not part of my marriage. Whereas a down payment or earnest money is part of the sale. You follow? The Spirit is not just a promise of inheritance to come. He's part of it. Now that's not to say that we now have part of the Spirit of God. We don't. We have all of the Spirit of God. Paul put that to rest in verse 3. That we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Right? So we don't have part of the Spirit now. We'll get the rest of it later. But the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God, is part of the larger, grander inheritance that is to be ours. From 2 Corinthians 1, this is how Paul uses it here. He who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The indwelling of the Spirit of God in you is the greatest assurance of the reality of your salvation. And here's why. Because the Spirit of God has been united together with you and dwells in you, what does that necessarily mean on judgment day? If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and on judgment day, even one is lost, then who is lost? God. If on judgment day even one who has been indwelt with the Spirit is lost, then God Himself is damned. That is the greatest assurance that we have, folks, of, of the reality of our salvation. That God is in us. It is impossible for us to ever be lost. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to them here. It's as though God is saying to his children that I have chosen you since eternity past. I have adopted you. I predetermined to adopt you into the family so that you are full heirs. I have redeemed you on the cross. I have given comprehensive forgiveness to you. I have indwelt you with my spirit. I have claimed you as my inheritance. And I have set aside an inheritance for you. And it is not only important to me that all of that is real, but it's important to me that you know it. So Paul hopes that the Ephesians, as he'll go on in the next section, it's his hope that they too will know this to be true. And, and know that to be true for you too. That God, God seeks to threaten your security and everything but Him. But He seeks to elevate and heighten your security in Him and Him alone.